Hello and welcome back to the God Story podcast episode 16. I'm Brent Siddle and I'm joined once again by the Reverend Ian Reid, Rido of King's Grace Presbyterian Church, Palmerston North, New Zealand. Ian, welcome. Hi Brent, how are you today? I'm very good, thank you. Well, we've got up to Hebrews chapter 9 and this week we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 14. Last time we looked at chapter 8 and we saw that Jesus brings a new and better tabernacle and temple and a new covenant. Now, how does he do this? So he embodies those things is really the, the best way to describe it, isn't it? That because he is both fully human and fully divine, fully God, uh, he is the temple in the sense of he is God's place on earth. Uh, and he's the temple, he's the tabernacle in that, in that he's the place where the sacrifice happens. Uh, and he brings a new covenant as well. He fulfills the old covenant uh, and releases kind of a new covenant in new promises to his people. How have we in Hebrews been introduced to the idea that Jesus is our great high priest? So back in chapter 7, uh, we saw that Jesus is in the order of Melchizedek, it says. And Melchizedek was this strange character in the Old Testament that kind of pops up once, who, but who's described as a priest of the God Most High. Uh, and in Psalm 110, it says that one of David's, it's a, it's a prophetic psalm, and one of David's descendants is that priest. Uh, and we introduced to Jesus being that one. Mm. How have we seen that gospel and law relate to each other? Indeed, how do they relate to each other? Yeah, we definitely saw that in chapter 8, didn't we? Particularly with the, uh, the big quote from Jeremiah 31, where it says that the, the law is going to be written on people's hearts and they won't, we won't need the law anymore uh, in that kind of sense, but it's going to be written on our hearts. And the way that they relate is that in the Old Testament in particular, and we, we experience this all around us, is that people think that they can relate to God by being obedient to the law to get into relationship with God uh, and needing to be obedient to stay in relationship with God, where grace says, no, you don't need that. You are in relationship with God, and this is how you now live. And so it's not a law against us, but the law in us. Mm. You've said, I think, that Jesus not only fulfills the law completely, but puts it in its right place. Now, what do you mean by that? So its right place, as in it doesn't, again, doesn't stand against us as something that kind of is condemning us, but stands with us as something, as a guide for how to live a good life in relationship with God. Mm. Okay, well, we're coming on to look at verses 1 to 10 today. So uh, let's read those. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, an Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory. There's our cherubim, Rito. Mm. Overshadowing the mercy seat of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. 
By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshipper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Well, there's a lot there, Ian, isn't there? How does chapter 9 show us that Jesus has fulfilled the Old Testament sacrificial system? Well, what's needed uh, to get us into relation with God and keep us in relationship is blood. And this is one of the themes that runs right through the Old Testament, that you need blood because blood is a representation of life. And when you look at the Old Testament law, a lot of them are around blood. And if you touch blood or if you touch you know, kind of anything to do with blood or death, Often uh, it makes you unholy, it makes you kind of out of relationship with God. Uh, but we need blood because it, it, it kind of also represents life uh, and that you, you sacrifice uh, a, an animal in the Old Testament, that's what it was. You sacrifice an, an animal to bring about life and that the life of the animal is transferred onto you. And what do these verses tell us about? the? Ta- There's a lot of information here about the tabernacle and temple system, isn't there? What, does, what, do, what do they tell us about that a tabernacle or temple system? Well, you've got this whole thing in the tabernacle where only certain people are allowed to enter certain places. And so the priests are allowed to enter a certain place and the, the high priest is allowed to, to enter kind of into the most holy place but only once a year. But the whole point is it's about separation rather than as bringing us close to God. It actually shows us how separate we are from God. And so all of those things are kind of set up to show God's holiness, that how far away we are from him, that he, want, he does want to be present with us, but he can't be because of his holiness. And so what was the distinction in the tabernacle and temple system between the holy place and the most holy place? How, how did that work? So the way the temple is kind of set up is in a series of squares. And when you, when you look at models uh, of the, the, te- the temple, the, the, the series of squares, you've got these different what are called courts. So on the outside, you have the Gentile court. That's a bit where Jesus got angry and uh, overthrew the, the tables and things like that. Uh, and so that was the but, Gentile sorry, court. Sorry, the Gentile court being for the non-Jewish people. Yeah, so yeah. They're, they're able to come to the temple and worship. So if they are non-Jewish people, you could still come to the temple and worship. That's why Jesus gets so angry, because they've set up a marketplace in the place where they're allowed to come and worship. Okay. And and that's why he says this is a place for all nations, uh, and they're stopping that from happening. They're stopping from the, the people of God from other nations coming in and worshipping. Then you have a place for the, the female Israelites and the male Israelites. Uh, but then as you go further and further in, it becomes the priests. Uh, the, and, then, and then kind of the, the, when you get right to the middle, it's the high priest that's able to serve there. So these kind of series of squares represents the separateness of God. And what happened in the, the, uh, the inner sanctum, if I can put it like that? What happened in the Holy of Holies once a year? So on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur... Uh, what you had was the priest could go in there only once a year. He had to offer sacrifices for himself before he could go in there. And they had all these rules where the priest had to wear, so the high priest had to wear bells on his uh, clothing so that they knew that he wasn't dead. They had to tie a rope around him because if anyone tried to enter there and try and get the, the, the high priest out, they, they would die themselves. God, God's kind of holiness would break out against them. So they tried to tie a rope around his neck so they could kind of, if he hadn't done something right and went in, they had that kind of a way of pulling him back out. Uh, but on that one day, 
uh, the Day of Atonement, he could go in there and offer sacrifices for himself but also for all of the people. And there was this kind of day of wiping all of the sin clean. Yeah, how was atonement made for the people once a year? What did the high priest actually do? Uh, the, the so the idea of atonement itself is it's kind of a made up word. I think it was, it was Wycliffe. I think that that made it up when so. he came to uh, translate the Bible into English, and there wasn't a word for this. And so he kind of made up a word. Not the first person to do that, uh, but it's the idea of at onement. And so it's a relational word. It's not a kind of a a legal word. It's but it's a relational word that God is making you know a new relationship with his people and so he did that by offering the blood of, of bulls and goats it says it says here in hebrews mm. how was god present in the holy of holies then what was what was particularly holy about that part of the building so it's interesting that you have uh, all of these different symbols in the holy of holies you've got you've got the what would have been the Ark of the Covenant, you've got... That's the Indiana Jones Ark of the Covenant, am it, I right? It is. Have you watched Indiana Jones recently? Uh, I watched it at Theological College. It, I, I tried re-watching it recently and I, I got a bit bored and turned it off, I'm sorry. Oh, <laughs> I, I thought it was really exciting, Rito, in oh. those days. Sorry. Um, but yeah, it is the same one that breaks out against the Nazis. That was, yeah, 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 <laughs> that one was It is that one, but the idea was uh, that the... the Ten Commandments are in there. You've got Aaron's staff and all these other bits and pieces. I think you've got you've got the mice and the tumors yes. from when they yes. it, it ended up in Canaan, yep. Can, Canaan yep. somewhere. Yep. All these other little random things, uh, but it's it's a representation of God's holiness being there. And when the when the temple is built. So the first temple, Solomon's temple, uh, a cloud comes down, just like there was a cloud leading the, the people with Moses. A cloud comes down and enters the Holy of Holies and it kind of rests in there. And it's a representation of God's glory being in that place. Yeah, and we recently, uh, what was it, a couple of podcasts ago, maybe three podcasts ago, talked with Alistair Roberts about the uh, the tabernacle and the, and the symbolism. Uh, and I love the way he described it as, yeah, it was like a kind of portable mountain, that it was a, a replay of Sinai in the sense that it was like God's presence coming down with the fire and the glory and the cloud resting on this holy place. And uh, why were there two cherubim between the um, between the mercy seat? Yeah, that, that's another interesting idea. And whenever we see cherubim, we need to think uh, of the, the kind of the different uh, points in Scripture where they, they pop up. They, they, point, they pop up. Uh, right at the beginning with the Garden of Eden, that there's two cherubim holding swords. Yeah, and and they, and they kept people, they kept people out of the garden, didn't they? Yeah, and th- this is yeah. the idea. Guarded, they guarded the garden as but, Adam as Adam was supposed to be, kind of like the ideal cherub that didn't happen. And so, at each point, that's what exactly what they're doing. They're guarding the place of God's holiness. So they guard it there. When uh, Joshua tries to enter the land, uh, he meets uh, an angel meets it with a sword mm. again, mm. and. Um, Basically, it's it's the same thing that the, the, this angel is guarding God's holy space uh, on the the curtains that that are in the holy of holies in this most holy place. What ha, what's we what's woven into the curtain are these little angels with swords. Again, you know, kind of the idea being they're guarding something, and you have here over the mercy seat these two cherubim guarding God's very most holy place. It's like the hot spot of God's holiness and His presence right in that that spot. And, and of course, famously in Ezekiel 1 and again a bit later on in Ezekiel, aren't they, when they reappear? Is it chapter 10 or chapter 8, I think? Uh, but the, uh, why do they have these f- strange faces? They're like kind of Peter Jackson 
creation. Oh, I shouldn't say it. Well, yeah, they're kind of like Peter Jackson, Lord of the Rings kind of creatures, aren't they? Because they have four faces or four parts of their face, uh, a lion face, an eagle face, a bull face, and a man face. Now, why, why do they have four faces, Rita? I've never... Quite That's, understood. Why that, that pops up in Revelation as well? Revelation oh yeah, in 4. Revelation four, because they're the the creatures, four creatures around the throne of God. Yeah, they? yeah, exactly mm. the same. Mm. I think it's a representation of all, all of creation. creation. Yeah. So they're they're kind of taking different parts of the creation mm. uh, and saying it's all of creation coming and worshiping in that kind of way. Yes, and if you want to hear more about that, just uh, go back to the earlier podcast we did with Alistair Roberts of in England, where he talks about I think they come up in the Seven Days of Creation podcast. And then he, then there's the one on the tabernacle where Alistair goes into more detail, if I remember correctly, on, on the cherubim. So why were the sacrifices in the tabernacle and temple ultimately ineffective then? Because they're not able, an animal sacrifice is not able to pay for human life. And so when we sin, uh, the, the punishment for sin is death. Uh, and but the death of an animal cannot cover the death of a human. So what we, what we really need is the death of a human to cover us. And there's only two people that can pay for that. You can pay for that for yourself, but ultimately you'll just be dead. Uh, or we can have someone perfect come and pay for it on our behalf. But why is a sacrifice even needed to cleanse us from our sin? People, there will be folk listening to this saying, well, this is a very strange idea. Why, if God is a God of love, why can't he just forgive us? Why, why this whole picture, this centuries-long picture of sacrifice? Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, I think it's a really good question. And it's a, a question that I've heard a lot of people ask, ask me. Why can't God just forgive? But we do need to think... You need to think a bit deeply about that, that what would that type of God be like if I was a judge or, or someone who uh, was um, kind of... People were coming to me with their complaints and they, and they said, look, I've, I, you know, you've done this, you've done that. And uh, so, you know, you think of something terrible that they've done. And if, as a judge, I just said, oh, that's okay. You're forgiven for doing that. You know, it would say I'd be an evil judge, wouldn't I? I wouldn't actually be a good judge for forgiving them. I actually would be an evil judge because I hadn't actually dealt with the problem. The thing is that we need to kind of work out is that those sacrifices are pointing to the sacrifice of God himself. And so if God just had have made a third party, you know, kind of just created Jesus to be kind of this thing that, that went and um, kind of paid the sacrifice for us, then that would be not justice at all, but God himself comes and he is the one that pays the sacrifice. Mm. Verses 11 to 14 of chapter 9. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Okay, fabulous passage. Rita, what does Jesus do then? He sacrifices himself. (laughs) It's pretty clear, isn't it? But this this is the the important thing. To get to the heart of the gospel uh, and the heart of, I think, in a sense, of who God is himself, is that we need to see that it is God who comes and does the sacrificing. You know, if 
when when we come and, and kind of say, oh, why, why can't God just forgive? Why can't he just kind of accept everyone? And then why does he require all these sacrifices? And why has he gone through this whole big system of this type of thing? And then you see it's him that has done the sacrificing, him that is giving him his own life. It kind of changes everything. And it really highlights what type of God we believe in. It's a God who truly is loving because he's prepared to give up himself for the thing that he loves. Mm. So how does Jesus then fulfill the whole sacrificial system? Well, really, it's kind of rather, we could say fulfilled, which is true, but the, almost in a sense that the whole sacrificial system is just pointing to the real sacrifice that we need, isn't it? And so all of those sacrifices are just pointing to the, the ineffectiveness of them, that we could just go do on and on for eternity doing those sacrifices and they could never get us into a relationship with, with the Father, but all we really need is the true sacrifice, which is the Son. How was the earthly tabernacle or temple a picture of the ideal or heavenly tabernacle and temple the writer describes? Well, what it does is it just presents a little picture. It's kind of a, a physical picture of a, a spiritual eternal reality. And so as human beings, we're not just kind of people of ideas. We're not just brains. We actually need physical things around us. And that's what God provides us. He provides us a physical thing to show us what he is really like. The problem is, is that we're a bit short-sighted and we think that the, the physical thing is the real thing. So what, in trying to wrap this all up, Ian, what did Jesus once and for all sacrifice achieve our salvation and and this is the beauty of it that there is nothing uh, that his sacrifice hasn't covered whether whatever sin that we think is the worst thing that we could have possibly done or even tried to run away from god or whatever it is it it cannot be kind of it is all covered by jesus it cannot be undone and so it's it's that we are fully covered but also that we're secure so how does Jesus' death and resurrection give us security of salvation? Because if it is once and for all, then there's nothing we can do to get it, get in. There's nothing we can do to get it out. And this is, to me, this is the, the freeing thing. It's the, the thing that lifts all the burdens from my shoulders. And it actually gives me a new identity because it, it says, Ian, yeah, you do suck, really. And I don't know if that, that kind of is offensive to people. But you know, when I look deep in my heart, I'm not a good person. I, I just, I'm... I can't do the things I want to do. But when Jesus comes and he lifts that burden of me, having to do those things, because he is the one that is able to fulfill that, and he is the one that that really is the the one who I've always been longing for, the one I long to be like as well, and he remakes me like him. So what does Jesus' blood do then for us? It covers our sin, uh, but more than that, it secures our salvation. And I think this is an important thing, is that if this really is God's blood, uh, then how precious is that? You know, it's kind of amazing, isn't it? Mm. So what do you say to someone who is struggling with a feeling of inadequacy or shame in the Christian life? Well, that, it's pretty normal um, <laughs> in some way. It's I, true of all of us. It is, isn't it? I was talking to someone last week who, uh, they go, you know, kind of, just a normal kind of Christian Christian person, and someone had they, they'd had a bit of trauma in their life, and they were talking to someone about it, and that the person had said to them, "Maybe you don't have enough faith, or as much faith as you thought you had," and it really got them down in terms of just feeling really inadequate. And I thought, and I just chatted, was chatting to them to say that I think that's really unfair for a start, but people, people you know, I, I just shared a story with him where um, just saying that that it's funny that 
even as a pastor, uh, quite a lot of people will say to you, I don't think you're a Christian or, you know, kind of, you know, you, I don't think the theology you believe is right and, and therefore you're not really saved. And, you know, that does not feel good and you don't feel great about it as a human being for a little while. It takes you a little while to, to kind of just remind yourselves of the, the truth. And, and this is the thing that, that I need to keep coming back and we all need to keep coming back, that when we feel inadequate... Jesus isn't inadequate, and we need to keep coming back to the heart of grace. We need to keep coming back to that idea that it's not up to us, it's up to Jesus, and if he's sufficient, then there's nothing I can do to get in, there's nothing I can do to get out. Mm. Yes, and how does this speak to someone who, uh, I don't know, maybe struggles with negative thoughts about themselves or a negative self-image? How can Jesus' blood and Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice reassure them? I just think keep telling yourself the truth. It, just because you've got those negative thoughts is not, it's not the worst thing in the world and it's not something that you necessarily have to think, oh, clearly I'm not saved because I've got these negative thoughts. We all have negative thoughts about ourselves, uh, but it's about retelling ourselves the truth all the time, uh, whether that's when you get up in the morning and, and opening the word or, you know, kind of if there's some specific verses that are helpful to you, just for reminding you of those truths, you have to do it all the time, reminding ourselves of the truth. And as we are reminded of the truth, what happens is our hearts are reshaped. Uh, and that's what we really need to be, what really needs to happen is that our heads and our hearts need to be reshaped to be, to know the truth and to live it out. Yeah, you, you've written, I think, that uh, the conservative Christian world or parts of it, we may have bought into the idea that if we fix our ideas, our actions will follow. Do we, do we tend to think of ourselves as head people rather than motivation, motivational or heart people? I think we've bought into some of the Enlightenment thinking that if, that we kind of, if you have enough information in your head, that is enough. But it's just not true, is it? That information and formation are not the same thing. That God is much more interested in the formation of you as a human being into his likeness and into the likeness of Jesus uh, than just knowing the information. And actually information kind of transfer and just knowing enough actually leads to huge heart problems because it leads to pride. Uh, it, le it leads to legalism, it leads to lots of different things. And I think we have really bought into that idea that I can just have enough knowledge about who God is but not actually know him. And it's just a huge danger that we need to avoid. Yeah, we, we've talked in previous podcasts the last couple of weeks about this law and grace distinction. How, how do we know if we're operating from a position of law or legalism as opposed to a position of grace? Yeah, it's a, it is a really good question. And I think kind of flowing on from that is one way to diagnose it is how do you look at other people that you might think are less than you in terms of either their faith or just people around? Does your heart go, I need to love that person well, or does your heart go, I'm better than them? And if you're saying, I'm better than them, then you really need to check yourself. And, and you may not say it out loud, you know, kind of we're very reserved in New Zealand, aren't we, about saying those things out are loud. You, are you not reserved in Australia, Rito? Definitely not, is what I'll say. <laughs> do, you, do you, this is a complete byline, do you, do you think that, this is called banter, do you think that Aussies are, um, are, are less serious than Kiwis? I think there's less serious in what way? Uh, just in their general approach to life. I mean, Aussies love to, to rib one another, don't they? Whereas Kiwis, a bit, 
get a bit sensitive about that. I find they get sensitive. Yeah. I, I'm very <laughs> careful in the way that I do that. Maybe they take them. I don't know what 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 the kind of. But I have found in churches that that um, Kiwis are much more willing to have a bit of fun than, than a lot of conservative <laughs> conservative churches in Australia. Fun's not. You have to leave that at the door of the church. Unfortunately, I like to have a bit of fun. Maybe that's why I feel like I fit more here. Um, but, but but you know the if we're looking down on other people. Um, that's a good diagnosis that we're living in legalism rather than living in grace. That if I'm genuinely can see my brother in brother or sister in sin, and I genuinely think or I genuinely think that they're believing the wrong thing, I will not look down on them. I will come to them in grace and love and try and help them out of those things. And I will actually do the hard thing of spending time with them and try and work through those things. Mm. Once again, thank you, uh, Rito, Reverend Ian Reed of King's Grace Church. Uh King's Grace Presbyterian Church, Palmerston North, New Zealand. Thank you so much. And um, we'll be talking and discussing and exploring more of Hebrews in the future. Ian, thank you so much. Thanks, Brent. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating and leave a review. This will help more people discover God's story for themselves. If you'd like to get in touch or learn more, please visit godstorypodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. That's godstorypodcast.com.